Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm glad that you're tuned in to The God Solution this morning. Well, it's going to be a great show. We're going to talk about something that I've hinted at a few times, but never devoted an entire show to. That's science in the Bible. Yep, the Bible tells us a whole lot about science. The Bible is not a science textbook by any means, but it does have numerous scientific statements that I believe bear the fingerprints of God. And I hope that as you hear some of these scientific statements this morning, you'll realize how significant it is that writers 2,000, 3,000, even 4,000 years ago described scientific realities that modern science has only recently begun to understand. And the reality that these are in Scripture, I think, tells us that Scripture was divinely inspired by the author and creator of this universe who knew these scientific realities all along. Like I've said the last couple weeks, there is not a battle between faith and science. There has been a lot of historical revisionism that has painted that picture. And similarly, in modern times, there have been weak scientific theories like evolution that have been propped up to try and create a supposed battle between faith and science. Again, we don't need to accept evolution because the transitionary evidence in the fossil record is lacking. The apparatus or mechanism of evolution is insufficient. Life doesn't come from non-life. The existence of design and information are not explained by natural phenomena alone. And the start of the universe cannot be explained by naturalism either. So a lot of these things that have been put up as gospel truth, I'm talking about evolution in particular, do not stand and they cannot be used as evidence to contradict scripture. Science is important, like I've always said. And of course, having studied it, I love it. But science can only tell us so much. It only has a particular domain that it describes. That's the natural world around us today. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about the natural world of the past. Maybe some, but not a whole lot. And what it does tell us about the natural world of the past is based on key assumptions about the past that we can't justify from a scientific perspective today. Science is descriptive, not prescriptive. The scientific laws that we discover about the universe around us describe what is happening around us, but they don't tell us the reason for that or the ultimate reality behind those phenomena. There is an underlying order to the universe that science helps us understand, but the ultimate reason for that order lies beyond the grasp of science itself. So science doesn't tell us anything truly conclusive about ultimate reality, but it tells us a whole lot about what we can see in the natural universe around us today. So it is beneficial, but it is not the guide to ultimate truth. And as I've mentioned on this show before, there's no scientific experiment that could ever tell us why science is a valid way of knowing truth. And so it kind of falls by its own criteria. Now, of course, I don't want to sound like I'm dogging on science. I think science is important. I just think it's important to be humble about what we know scientifically and about how that reflects on absolute reality. 
Remember Hume, who famously asserted that any truth claim that did not contain abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number, or any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence, should be committed to the flames. Sounds a whole lot like the naturalistic atheists of today. He failed to realize that that very statement did not contain abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number, or any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact or existence. So that very statement and the criteria of knowledge that he set forth need to be committed to the flames as he himself recommended. Scientists need to remember his blunder and maintain humility about what we can know through science. Again, I truly love science and think it's important. And I don't think it's the only way to know ultimate reality. And I don't think it can tell us everything about ultimate reality. And I surely don't think science can tell us anything about the non-natural or supernatural universe. Science can tell us a whole lot about the natural universe, but it can't tell us anything about God himself, who is not natural. He is supernatural, and he is above and beyond the natural universe alone. So, in the Bible, we do see the fingerprints of God in some of these scientific statements. Again, I don't believe that the Bible is a scientific textbook, but I believe some of the scientific statements in the Bible show us that the Bible was divinely inspired by the creator of the universe who knew these scientific statements all along. I'm not claiming either that the Bible writers were scientists who understood modern science. See, the Bible claims to be directly inspired by God. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed. Similarly, in 2 Peter 1.21, we read, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Christian view of the Bible is that it was authored by God directly through men that wrote it down. As we read about prophecy, I encourage you to go to GodSolutionShow.com and see our shows on prophecy in the Bible and how those two show the fingerprints of God on his word, the Bible. That being said, though, I want to make it clear that I believe that God authored his word in such a way that people of those times, including the people that wrote it, understood what they were writing in their context. They weren't modern scientists. But God authored it in such a perfect way that it would be understood by them and by everybody between them and us, and that it would be understood by us with our modern understanding of science. I want to give you just one example of this, and this is the first of 15 examples of science in the Bible that I want to share this morning. This was written somewhere around 3,000 years ago, and it's in Isaiah 40, verse 22. It says that God sits enthroned above the circle or sphere of the earth. Now, this would have been relevant to the ancient Near East readers that would have read this at that time. It would have been relevant because they believed that the earth was a round object that floated around in a basin of oceans and water, so to say, that had an atmosphere propped up above it. And so they would have read this and said, of course, God, the creator, sits enthroned above the circle or sphere of the earth which is floating around in this basin. So this statement would have been relevant to the readers of that time. Similarly, it is relevant 
to the readers of today that realize that the Earth is a spherical planet. So that being said, God so divinely inspired his word that it would be relevant not just to those that understand modern science, but in a way that it would be relevant to all people of all time based on their understanding at that time. The Bible truly is miraculous. So going back to that statement, the Bible talks about Earth's spherical shape, and it does so 3,000 years ago, long before modern science ever came to a realization of the shape of the universe. Again, <laughs> that kind of blows out of the water the accusation that the Bible claimed that the Earth was flat. It is not flat, and the Bible stated that nearly 3,000 years ago. On to the second scientific statement in the Bible that I'm going to discuss today. And this is from about 3,500 years ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. And it describes the beginning of the universe. Interestingly, back in the 1960s, the beginning of the universe was confirmed by modern science. So, yet again, modern science catches up with the Bible nearly 4,000 years after the Bible said it was so. Agnostic Robert Jastrow, who founded and led the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, described this in his book, God and the Astronomers, saying, Now we see the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time and a flash of light and energy. For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance, he is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So, the beginning of the universe is described in the Bible and confirmed by modern science. Jastrow, in that quote, referred to the beginning of the universe with a flash of light and energy. That is the next thing that I wanted to mention, the third scientific statement that we'll discuss this morning. Also, from about 3,500 years ago, a couple verses later than Genesis 1-1, we read in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the Bible claims, and this was claimed 3,500 years ago, that light defined the beginning of the universe. Steven Weinberg is an atheist. He also won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1979, and he describes how light defined the beginning of the universe on page 6 of his book, The First Three Minutes. Again, we see the greatest scientists of our time telling us that the beginning of the universe was light. And guess what? We see that very statement in Scripture. You could say it's coincidence, but I think it's far more than just coincidence. Next, we see about 4,000 years ago, the Bible says that the universe is expanding. Not did expand, but continues to expand. Job 26.7 is one example, and there are many, many more. And I want to go back to Isaiah 40.22, which we just mentioned about the spherical shape of the earth. And beyond just that, we read in Isaiah 40, 22, that God stretches out the heavens. So he is continuing to stretch out 
the heavens, the universe. Now, the reality that the Bible says numerous times, and again, these are just two examples, that the universe is expanding is outstanding because science did not believe this was the case until less than 100 years ago. Edwin Hubble discovered this in 1929, around 4,000 years after the Bible. And he discovered this based on some of Einstein's work. But the reality is that the universe is expanding today. That's one of the reasons that we know that the universe began out of nothing a finite time ago. But the reality that the universe is expanding and that that is mentioned over and over and over in scripture is phenomenal. Yet again, God's fingerprints on his word. Number five, 3,000 years ago, the Bible describes the second law of thermodynamics. Again, in many different places. This is the law of entropy. Psalm 102.26 says, They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. Talking about the universe, wearing out like a garment. The law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. Isaiah 51.6 says similarly, Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. We see throughout Scripture that the whole universe is wearing out like a garment, that it is going towards entropy. And this is the second law of thermodynamics that modern science learned around 3,000 years after the Bible said it was so. Pretty outstanding, if you ask me, and hard to just write off as a coincidence. This next one is outstanding, so I'll just mention it, and then I'll get back to it in a few seconds. 2,000 years ago, the Bible discussed and described radioactive decay. You'll be surprised to hear the details of this one. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. Thanks so much for tuning in. Well, we're talking about science in the Bible. And some of the scientific statements in the Bible are absolutely unbelievable. And the fact that they were written down two, three, and 4,000 years ago is even more striking. I mentioned that we're about to talk about radioactive decay in the Bible. And I'll preface the rest of this conversation with a story. I was talking to an atheist friend a few years back, and I told him, if I could show you a statement in the Bible describing radioactive decay, nuclear fission to be exact, what would you think? And this atheist friend said, well, of course that would be amazing, but you can't do that because there's no such statement in the Bible. And I said, would you like me to show it to you? And he said, well, there's nothing for you to show me because nothing like that exists in the Bible. Of course, holding on for dear life to his bias and his presupposition of naturalism. And I said, well, let's turn to 2 Peter 3.10. And I read him 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Pretty phenomenal. And I'll describe some of the Greek words in this text because my friend and others that I've shared this with try to go that route. They say, oh, well, when the Bible says that the elements will be destroyed by fire, it's not talking about real elements. And it's not saying that they'll break apart 
and release lots of energy and heat, it's not saying that. Well, it actually is saying that. So let's look at it. The Greek for destroy is luo, and it means to undo what is bound and to dissolve something that is compacted together, to break something up into its constituent parts. Sounds a lot like fission, if you ask me. Next, the Greek for elements used in this verse is stoikion, and it's the word from which we get stoichiometry, which describes chemical reactions of elements and molecules. So the concept that this had nothing to do with elemental interaction is crazy. It's the exact word that was used in this passage. Again, I'm not saying that Peter, who wrote this 2,000 years ago, understood modern chemistry. But as he was guided by the Holy Spirit, he wrote down this definition of radioactive decay, which is pretty striking. This verse is literally describing the nuclear fission of the building blocks of nature, the elements themselves. The Wikipedia definition for nuclear fission is the process in which the nucleus of an atom splits into smaller parts, lighter nuclei, often producing free neutrons and photons in the form of gamma rays and releasing a very large amount of energy. Now, 2 Peter 3.10 literally tells us that the elemental building blocks of matter will break apart into their smaller constituent parts, releasing fire and energy causing destruction almost identical to the modern definition of radioactive decay and nuclear fission. Again, written 2,000 years ago by a fisherman who was guided by the Holy Spirit in writing God's Word. He's actually the same one who, guided by the Holy Spirit, wrote the verse that we started out with, 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by his Holy Spirit. Peter was one of those men who wrote what he was directed by the Holy Spirit of God to write. And some of that included God's very fingerprints on what he wrote, including this definition of radioactive decay. Amazing. 4,000 years ago, the Bible writes about hydrologic cycles. In Ecclesiastes 1.7, we read, All streams flow into the sea, yet their sea is never full. The place that the streams come from, there they return again. And Job 36 tells us he draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture, and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? Now, a lot of that relates to clouds and condensation, which the Bible described 4,000 years ago as well. Job 26.8 says he wraps up the waters in clouds yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. And Job 37.11 says he loads the clouds with moisture, and he scatters his lightning through them. Amazing. 3,500 years ago, the Bible describes atmospheric jet streams, saying in Ecclesiastes 1.6, the wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. How a writer 3,500 years ago could describe something that's occurring in the atmosphere is unbelievable. Yet, here it is. 4,000 years ago, we're told that the Earth's foundation is hung on nothing. Many other worldviews have had to come up with explanations for what holds up the Earth. I think in Greek mythology, it was Apollos. And I've heard of other perspectives, for example, turtles holding up the Earth one after another. All that being said, the Bible says in 
a scientifically accurate way, in Job chapter 26, verse 7, he suspends the earth over nothing. The scientific statement that the earth is hung on nothing is outstanding. And something that blows my mind, how could a writer 4,000 years ago have known that was the case? Copernicus published this in 1543, but he did so about 3,500 years after the Bible described it as so. 4,000 years ago, the Bible says that the air has weight. In Job 28:25, it says that he imparted weight to the wind. Lavoisier discovered this in 1778, about 3,800 years after the Bible. Amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing how the Bible describes these scientific realities long before science ever caught up. 4,000 years ago, the Bible describes hydrothermic vents or freshwater springs in the ocean. In Genesis 7:11, talking about the flood, we read the fountains of the great deep burst open. In other words, there were springs in the oceans. And again, in Job 38:16, we read, have you ever entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Again, there are freshwater springs in the ocean. The Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution discovered these in 1977, about 4,000 years after the Bible described them. Unbelievable. Let's go on to number 13. 3,500 years ago, the Bible said that like begets like. This is a biological law. In Genesis 1, verses 11 through 12, we read, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21 continues, So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And verse 25 continues, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And biology, as we understand it today, is confirmed in the first book of the Bible. Again, in the first chapter of that book. Unbelievable. 4,000 years ago, Job wrote in chapter 28, verse 5, Below the surface, the earth is melted as by fire. This is an interestingly accurate description of the molten outer layer of earth's core and one that Job 4,000 years ago had no way of knowing. Unbelievable. The Bible beat science, R.D. Oldham, in 1906 to be exact, by nearly 4,000 years. And I don't think that this verse is referring to the mining that's mentioned later in the passage, but to the heat and pressure required to form the sapphire mentioned in the very next verse. That being even another scientific reality, which is unbelievable. So, more science in the Bible that seems to be just unfathomable. Okay, one last one that I'm going to close with that I think is pretty awesome. 2,000 years ago, we read twice in the New Testament that one event could be seen across the world. In Matthew 24, 30, Jesus himself says, At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So there you have it. All the nations of the earth 
seeing the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky at the same time. Revelation 11, 9 through 11 says, For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will watch the same event. The only way that such events could be seen across the globe by people of all tribes and nations at the same time is through TV, which was an impossibility during the time that the New Testament was written. But it is a scientific reality today, and modern science has paved the way for that to be the case. So this is prophetic about the future, and at the same time describes a scientific reality that, because of science, we can see one event throughout the world at the same time, through the TV. Charles Jenkins invented the first TV in 1923, about 1900 years after the Bible described the reality that one event could be seen around the world by all people of the world. So here are just a few reasons that the Bible is scientifically accurate. And usually when I describe these to my atheistic friends, they try to write them off piecemeal, like they do with prophecy, like they do with history, like they do with everything. Just write each one off, come up with some irrational excuse why we shouldn't believe it, and that's an irresponsible way to handle evidence. I think someone with intellectual integrity will look at this and say, it is outstanding that the Bible makes such statements, and it demands that I investigate further. There have been many Christian scientists throughout history. Galileo, the father of astronomy and analytical science. Newton, the pioneer of modern physics. Descartes, the originator of modern mathematics. And Pasteur, the founder of microbiology, are just a few of the scientists that have been Christians throughout history. And it's crazy to think that Christianity and science are opposed to each other. Again, we have even modern examples. A great example is Francis Collins, arguably one of the greatest scientists of the past century who has a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And as we close, I want to remind you of Dr. Higgs' recent statements. I mentioned these last week on the air. And concerning this battle between science and faith, Higgs wrote, What Dawkins does too often is to concentrate his attack on fundamentalists. But there are many believers who are just not fundamentalists. Fundamentalism is another problem. And when he talks about fundamentalism, I wouldn't say that he is referring to fundamentalists that actually take their faith seriously and believe the Bible is the word of God, but by fundamentalists in religious circles that do crazy things based on their beliefs. For example, fly planes into towers. Dawkins talks a lot about those types of fundamentalists. He says, Higgs again, I mean Dawkins in a way is almost a fundamentalist himself of another kind. I think you have to be rather more careful about the whole debate between science and religion than some people have been in the past. He continues, I don't happen to be, one, a believer, myself, but maybe that's just more a matter of my family background than that there's any fundamental difficulty about reconciling the two, admitting that science and faith can coexist. And this is coming from Dr. Higgs, one of the most prominent scientists alive the originator of the Higgs boson hypothesis, which bears his name, which has been largely confirmed by recent scientific experiments. Well, as we conclude this show about science, I want to get away from the science. The science in the Bible is nothing more than God showing you that he's trustworthy. And if he's trustworthy with science, 
he's trustworthy with your life. And that's what he ultimately calls you to, to come to him and say, Jesus, I need you. I believe you are who you say you are. Please forgive my sins. Please come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. Please make me the kind of person that you want me to be. I hope that you'll take that step of faith this morning, realizing that he is completely credible and that some of these scientific statements in his word are nothing more than his fingerprints on his word that back up his claim to be able to give you an eternity with him in heaven and an abundant life on this earth if you'll just put your faith and trust in him. I'd like to invite you to the River Church this morning. We'll be meeting at 860 Plymouth Drive right here in Durango. It's right off Florida Road, and we'll be meeting there at 1045 a.m. Again, that's 860 Plymouth Drive here in Durango right off Florida Road this morning at 1045 a.m. I'll be speaking there this morning, so I hope you'll come and join us. We're also going to be meeting this Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble 125 for Connect. I hope you'll be able to make that. It'll be a great time, and we're going to be doing our famous Angels and Mortals, which is a great time to come and feel loved more than you've ever felt loved before. You'll have to come this Tuesday at 6 p.m. Noble 125 to find out more. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday.